When I was 17, I thought I had a pretty solid plan for my life. Like, really, really good goals. A lot that I was going to contribute to society. Dancing queen, soon-to-be Academy Award-winning screenwriter, director, and actress. And that should really tell you everything you need to know about my maturity level when I was 17. Well, that and the fact that I tried to jump through the front window of my friend's car, like they did in Dukes of Hazard. Do you remember that show? Well, if you're old like me, you probably do. If you're younger, look it up on YouTube. Anyway, it went about as well as one would expect. Turns out even a skinny 17-year-old doesn't fit through the window of an Oldsmobile very well. I was a good kid. I thought of myself as an adult, though. I think we all do when we're 16 or 17. Looking back, I wasn't. God, 17 is so young. My name is Kirsten Karen, and you are listening to Her Name Podcast. This season, her name is Norma Rodeback. Yeah, 17 is pretty young really young, painfully naive young, depending on who you are. For me, certainly. And that's one of the things that I keep coming back to. 17 is so young. Over and over in my head, I think that. 17 is just so damn young. 17 is still a child. Legally, physically, emotionally, you're just not the adult that you think you are. Norma was 17 when she was killed. Her last moments on this earth were horrific. And why? We always want to know why. I have my theories, but there just seems to be so much missing in her investigation that I find myself almost as enraged at the law enforcement who handled her case as the person who confessed to killing her. It was like another kind of victimization. And in the end, I'm not even entirely sure the man who confessed actually committed the crime. And if he did, I don't believe he acted alone. So either way, what that means to me is that a killer has gotten away with murder. Okay, some things you need to know right up top. The city of Vernal, even today, is a relatively small town, honestly. It feels like a town more than a city. It's in northeastern Utah and sits about 20 miles west of the Colorado border and 175 miles east of Salt Lake City which is about a three-hour drive. The population is around 11,000-ish, give or take. Vernal's population in the 1950s was more like 3,000. So it's definitely growing a bit, but I would say that the population rises and falls with the oil industry. It's a bit boom or bust to a degree. Now, when I lived in Vernal during the 1980s, the population was, I don't know, 6,600-ish. And I will tell you that even as a kid, it seemed like everyone 
knew everyone. Vernal was, and still is, to a large degree, like many other cities in Utah. Which is to say that it's very, very Mormon. The Mormon Church, or the LDS Church, as they prefer to be called, heavily influences life in small Utah towns. And from what I've read in the newspapers of the time, the Mormon Church's influence was even stronger in the 1950s than it is right now. Norma herself was a Mormon. I was a member of the Mormon Church until about 12 years ago, so I've got a pretty solid background in Mormon Church stuff. And I will try to explain some of those things to you as best I can so you don't feel too out of the loop. You're going to hear some terms in news articles and possibly interviews that I may need to kind of explain to you and I may need to define just because they've kind of got their own lingo. The ones that are going to come up in this episode will be ward, which is another name basically just for a congregation. Several Mormon wards make up what's called a stake, not like the kind you eat, but the kind that you would like hammer into the ground. The clergy of the Mormon church is unpaid. They volunteer their time and each ward has a leader, an ecclesiastical leader called a bishop. Each stake has an ecclesiastical leader called a stake president. So that's your brief crash course on vernal and on Mormon terminology, and now we're ready to move on. I'm a bit more of a traditional kind of narrator in most circumstances, but I really think that this might work better if we begin at the end. And the end is that this is officially a closed case. On June 27th, 1956, a 24-year-old man by the name of Carl Donnell Dow died by suicide. Before taking his life, he reportedly left a suicide note confessing to the murder of Norma Rodeback. We're going to talk about this confession because it strikes me as odd. Admittedly, I don't have a lot of experience with suicide notes. Okay, I don't have any. But it's just, well, you'll see. Carl left behind a pregnant wife and two small children. Okay, so we're going to start there with, I guess, the end. Okay, what I want to do is read to you the parts of his confession that I have access to. And this is what was printed in actually several newspapers of the time. And I am drawing largely from the Vernal Express because... You know, that's where it happened. Honestly, I was really surprised to see articles about the investigation, about Norma, about Carl, in papers as far flung as Oregon and Indiana. There's even one in California. Just seems kind of strange to me that the news would have spread that far. So, reading from the Vernal Express... There is an article. Unfortunately, I don't have a date with it because this is a copy that was taken from a notebook that had several news articles in it that my grandmother had kept. Okay, so here is at least part of what Carl Dow said in his suicide note. 
I killed Norma Rodeback about 10.30 on the evening of June 13th, 1956, Midway, Main Street, and 3rd South on 2nd West, where the necklace was found she had on. I have often read of people who have committed a crime state that everything went black for a while. I know what they meant. She and I were talking, facing south, and then blackness, and we were struggling off the sidewalk. She made some noise, perhaps trying to scream. I did not want to hurt her then. Had I been in full control of myself, I feel I could have did her great harm in the first blow. As it is, I do not know just what happened. I have heard all sorts of stories of what I had done to her. And then the people would say, but when they catch him, you won't believe a word he says. I could not lay with her. And then the article indicates that the bottom of his page was torn off. Don't know if there was something else there, but if there was, they didn't find it. And if they did find it, they didn't disclose it to the press. Back to his confession. In 45 minutes, I had choked her to death and put her in the canal and made it back home in time to call the Vernal Theater by 11.15. It does not even seem like I have done this. There is such a short space between life and death. I wish only one thing now that this has happened and hope that this act of mine will be of some good to the earth and mankind. In my life, and please, for God's sake, let the public hear this. That last part was underlined. There have been times when I showed definite tendencies to my fellow men of following a path to this end. Educate the public to understand and know such outward evidences of man's behavior, for what they are and what they can lead to. The people in my life who I have come to with my problems were not education in such a manner as to know what should be done for me or with me. I hope those people to who I have approached will one day realize a few things. There was the policemen in San Diego, the doctors in the Navy, doctors in Salt Lake City, they all have known me, and the police in Salt Lake City, who was just too busy to say go to hell, here I am, and my folks, I tried so hard to let them know that I did not feel good inside, but no one seemed to understand. I cannot and do not blame anyone but myself for this. The people above just did not know. Would whoever reads this please do all they can, and then there was a word scratched out, to start something to stimulate the public and those in charge into doing a little toward the education of all in a little mental health and all of its complications. This confession is true, and I feel my judgment upon myself will be of no help to anyone. Signed, Carl Donnell Dow. So what in the hell is Carl talking about? Well, we're starting at the end, but let me enlighten you a little bit. Norma Faye Rodeback disappeared on June 13th, 1956, after leaving her job at Quality Drug. This was at approximately 10 p.m. She worked at the soda fountain portion of the drugstore. Her parents, Hannah and Noah Rodeback, lived outside the town on a farm. Because Norma worked at the drugstore in town and attended the local high school, she was living with her sister, Janice, and brother-in-law, Niall Bigelow, and their small son, Brent, at the time of her disappearance. So that's the home she was headed to when she disappeared. Norma was a sweet, conscientious, responsible teenager, so when she didn't show up in a timely manner after her shift was over, her sister Janice knew something was wrong. And as so frequently happens, the police kind of just brushed it off. 
Now, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. I watch a lot of Dateline. And this just seems to be a common theme. Oh, you know, the teenager is missing. They're just out with their friends. And that's what Janice was told. Oh, don't worry about your sister. She's probably just out with her friends. Lost track of time. This will never stop making me angry. If someone who really knows the loved one in question goes to the police and says, hey, this is really out of character, the police need to start listening. So it's just really, really goddamn frustrating to see this happen in this case and know that it's been happening since the 1950s, probably before then, and it still happens today. So, Norma's family just can't seem to convince the police right away that she's missing, missing, that something is wrong. Because any other time that she had decided to go out with friends, she would let someone in her family know. She was, from what I have gathered, very, very responsible that way. And polite. She was living with her sister and brother-in-law. So you kind of, you know, come and go, yes, but you know, let your roommates, as it were, know where you're going and when you expect to be back so they don't worry. So despite the police trying to reassure Norma's family that she was just out with friends, that she was going to turn up soon, she didn't turn up. Not that night. Not the next day. What did turn up, though, on the side of a road merely two blocks from her home was a broken necklace that had spots of blood on it. Her mother identified it as Norma's necklace. So Wednesday is when she disappeared. Thursday, I believe, is when they found the necklace. And that's when they realize, okay, something is very, very wrong. They spent the next several days searching And her body finally was found in a canal a few days later. I believe it was the Sunday after she disappeared. She was found with her clothing torn. Uh, She had bruises around her chin area and her neck. A car upholstery clamp was embedded in her elbow. The autopsy would indicate that she had been raped. There were bite marks on one of her breasts. And they determined that she had been strangled and then tossed into the canal. A canal that police felt would only be known by a local. So the hunt began for her killers. According to the papers that I've read, the police seemed to believe that there were two killers involved. They believed that the killers were local. And as you will see, as we spend some more time on this, they just then seemed to abandon that theory and then start questioning people that were not local. So I feel like they were all over the place. And I don't know... What contributed to that? I I do think the fact that Norma came from a family that was poor 
maybe contributed to them not taking it quite as seriously. But we're going to dive into that together. What I don't understand as I've been reading through this material is they seemed so dead set on two killers, but then closed the case when one person confessed. So why? Why were they just all of a sudden like, yep, that that was it. Good job, us. Pat's on the back. That's another question I keep asking myself. Norma's coverage in the newspapers was a little different. Kind of left me feeling frustrated, I guess. When they printed the article about her funeral, they go on to list like all these people who did musical numbers or attended from out of town and here were the songs that were sung and you know here's who you know acted as flower girls i've never seen flower girls at a a funeral but maybe that was a thing back then you know here's who said the prayer at the burial site it just it almost seemed to me like i don't know like one of those like society pages like here's who was at the party kind of a thing and yeah I could be reading this wrong and I may be reading this with my cynical you know reading it with my cynical lens I guess but I don't know it's hard to read some of these news articles and not just feel really, really frustrated. The newspapers give me a pretty decent timeline of what happened the night that Norma disappeared. And they give me a play-by-play on who was at her funeral. But they don't tell me a whole lot about who she was. There were three paragraphs that I found in a newspaper article, once again, in the Vernal Express. And this is what it says. Norma Rodeback was born December 29th, 1938 in Vernal. She had just completed her junior year in Uinta High School as an honor student. She was a member of the Future Homemakers of America and the Commercial Club. She had been working at Quality Drug for the past 18 months. Besides working at the fountain, she waited on customers in other parts of the store. She was reported prompt and efficient, courteous, but never over-friendly to strangers. Miss Rodeback was an active member of the LDS Church. She had no steady boyfriend, but had dated several. Survivors include her parents, four brothers, and three sisters, Shirley, Clyde, and Wilbur, Charles, Gwen, and Mrs. Janice Bigelow, as well as Mrs. Madge Campbell. And then it talks about a reward fund that had been set up to try and find who killed her. This was, of course, before they had the uh, suicide note confession. So this brings up something that I see repeated throughout these news articles where they seem to go really out of their way to prove that uh, Norma 
wasn't doing anything wrong. And on the one hand, that's good because victim blaming is an atrocious problem. But on the other hand, I feel like, you know, to say things like, oh, she didn't have a steady boyfriend. Like, okay, why, why did I need to know that? What, what am I missing here in the context of 1956 society that that needed to be said? She had dated a few boys, but no steady boyfriend. I mean, was that frowned upon at that point in time? Would it have made a difference? Are they trying to just say, you know, that's not someone who's a suspect? I don't know. I don't know what they're trying to tell me with this, but one thing is for sure. They're not telling me a whole lot about her. It seems that she was smart. Looks as though she was a hard worker. Not overly friendly. So part of what I want to do as we research this is find out who she was. Oh, full disclosure here. Norma's nephew, Brent Bigelow, the one she was living with at the time she disappeared, he's my dad. And that's how I'm involved in this story. Yes, I am interested in the case. Yes, I have questions about that and things just don't feel right with that. But her life and her death affected a lot of people. I can see the effects of it in my family, even though we didn't really talk about Norma. I heard her name mentioned, whispered really, every once in a while. All I knew growing up was that my grandmother's sister had been killed when she was young and the person who killed her committed suicide. That was all that I knew. And I'm not telling you this to say that my family should have made that more open, I guess, or had should have been more open about it. I can understand their reasons for not talking about it a lot. And my dad was really young when Norma was killed, so I'm not even entirely sure that he has a lot of memories of her. But looking back on my childhood and my time as a teenager and the way that he worried, I can see how this affected him. In conversations I've had with my grandmother, where the pain is still so raw, I know it's affected her. And what about Carl's family? I've tried reaching out to one of his sons. Haven't heard back yet. But while I look into the case itself, I also want to look into who these people were. It's never just a case. This is always about people's lives. It's about families. It's about friends who loved Norma, who loved Carl. It's about the ways that the loss has affected all of us. 
In the next episode, we're going to go through the timeline of Norma's last night in more detail. Because there are some questions I have about how everything transpired, even in just her short walk home from work that night. If you have any information, any stories that you want to share, photos, news articles, anything at all about either Norma or Carl, please reach out, send an email to hernamepodcast at gmail.com. You don't have to be recorded in an interview if you don't want to, but I could use all the information that is out there. Thanks for listening to Her Name is Norma Rodeback.